Okay, hello and welcome to Making the Story in the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, uh, raise a kid, get a job, and survive coronavirus. Uh, today I am joined by Brent Sirota, uh, who's Associate Professor of History at North Carolina State University. Uh, he is the author of the 2014 book from Yale University Press, Christian Monitors. Uh, you can check out his really excellent Twitter feed at, at Brent Sirota. Um, where you can find not just stuff about current events in history, but, but great musical recommendations and opinionated stuff about about <laughs> about Gen Xers. Uh, and right now he's working on a book about the separation of church and state in the 18th century. Welcome to the show, Brent. Uh, thank you for having me, Brendan. Um, so, uh, look, I, your your work is about like the history of religion and the history of the church. And 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 when I was starting to to my career in, in history I, I honestly whenever the books started out talking about religion in the church in, in britain i would kind of skim um so can you tell me like what's like the religious situation like in britain in the 18th century I hear people talk about like a state church but i'm not really clear on what that is can you, yeah Sure. Um, so people, religion in British history, I mean, I think tends to be at its most uh, heated uh, in the 17th century, right? We, yeah. we have the rise of Puritanism, um, and uh, which is a critique of the established uh, church of England, which is essentially the national state church. Um, uh, your listeners are probably familiar with Puritanism because many of them uh, uh, failing to do much um, by way of, of purifying the church of England um, wind up, of course, settling in the American colonies. Hmm. Um, uh, this eventually leads to um, a series of kind of set, set piece um, uh, religio-political conflicts, namely the uh, British Civil Wars of the uh, 1640s, um, and then more important for my purposes, um, the so-called Glorious Revolution, the Revolution of 1688-89, yeah. um, in which um, the final Roman Catholic king of Great Britain is overthrown um, uh, largely by devotees of the established church, the Church of England. Mm. Um, and what follows from that, and this is really, I think, one of the things that's just sort of, of, of major significance in the history of um, world religion is um, in 1689, something called the Toleration Act is passed. Um, and this is um, uh, establishes a, a legal religious toleration for um, Protestants who are not members of the Church of England. Okay, and that would be all of your um, Protestant denominations, essentially Presbyterians, Baptists, Quakers, Congregationalists, um, etc. I, yeah. I want to slow down a, a, a little bit sure. because here's where I trip up. Uh, okay, we, I just we have three groups so far. We have Puritans who who. Uh, dress in black and uh, uh, eat turkey and, and Thanksgiving. Um, and also they briefly take over the country in the, the, the Civil War and do a mm -hmm. bunch of things to, to really dramatically change everyday religion, right? They ban right. sports. They, they try to ban Christmas, stuff like that. So you have the Puritans. Then you have Catholics, Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, are there many of them in Britain? Or, 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 well, or, no. By, by around the time of the Glorious Revolution, the demographic breakdown of religion in England would be about 92% of the population are 
members of the established church, that is, members of the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, I should point out, just to be confusing, that the term Anglican is really a 19th century term, mm-hmm. um, but um, we can call them Anglicans, right? That is, members of the Church of England. Um, okay. Another 4 to 6% are what are called dissenters or nonconformists. Um, these are mostly the heirs of the Puritans that you just described as they've kind of fractured into a number of different religious denominations that I just mentioned, mainly Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Baptists, and Quakers. Um, after right. that, there's about another 2 or 3% uh, are Roman Catholic. Uh, and those, those are mostly old aristocratic Roman Catholic families. Okay, so with the the glorious revolution, you have the final Roman Catholic king Mm -hmm. uh, being deposed, and then in in, in 1689, you have the Toleration Act. Uh, What's so great about the Toleration Act? Well, I mean, it's... I don't know if I would call it great. I mean, basically, the sense is, I mean, the sense is this is not the First Amendment. This is not the separation of church and state. But the sense is that um, dissenters from the Church of England, that is Protestant dissenters, not Catholics, not Jews, not Muslims, Protestant dissenters from the Church of England can worship unmolested. Right, that's essentially it. Now, that does not mean they're granted anything like equality. Um, what's still in effect in England until? Uh, 1829 is something called the Test Act, which means to basically uh, serve in any capacity in public life. That is um, to serve in parliament, to have a military commission, to go to universities, to hold a, a fellowship at the universities, any of these things. You must pass the sacramental test, which means literally taking the sacrament of communion in a Church of England church. Um, oh, wow. And therefore, everybody who can't do that, Jew, Muslim, Baptist, Quaker, Presbyterian, anybody who can't or won't do that is more or less relegated to second-class citizenship, right? I mean, that persists well into the 19th century. So you have a kind of literally toleration, right? Which is to say these people are tolerated. They're no longer being uh, uh, burned or hanged or jailed or forcibly transported to America for practicing a religion different than the state religion. Um, But that's it. That's Hmm. pretty much it. Right. Um, and after that, you enter into what has, was long considered, and this is to kind of ultimately answer your question. You, what happens as you push into the 18th century is you enter into a long period of what for a very long time in historiography was, was considered a kind of uh, somnolent period, right? A period in which um, compared to the 17th century, there is, there is absolutely a real kind of um, – neutralization or narcotization of religion, right? I mean, is, you know, religion becomes um, something that people are, and this is a good thing, no longer murdering one another about. Mm. Um, but, you know, the flip side being that religion becomes this um, thing that nobody much cares all that much about, right? Um, and the kind of majority religion, Anglicanism, um, is now just sort of appended to the establishment. And um, Brendan, you work on the 18th century, but you know, um, I'm sure you read enough um, before you tuned out and you know, you hear about the kind of fox hunting parson, right? I mean, the kind of local clergyman just becomes a figure of the establishment and, you know, doesn't really seem to be, you know, represent any kind of 
spiritual critique or alternative of kind of everyday life. Um, one of the more pleasant uh, 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 primary sources for, for listeners to read is Parson Woodford's diary. Uh, he's one of these establishment uh, uh, clergymen. And uh, you can, there, there's definitely a ceasefire uh, religious uh, 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 disputation going on because all that he writes about is his great meals that he eats. Right. You know, it's right. just these endless lists of his fun meals and his meetings with local gentry and like right. this and that person, how much he pays his servants. There's no sense of like, you know, religious angst there. And, and yes, it's a lovely read. He's, he's a, he's a right. big hearted man. Um, but so we get kind of a ceasefire in the, in, in the 18th century. Yeah, I mean, the other place to go, you know, closer to the end of the century is any Jane Austen novel. You know, yeah. the, clergy, yeah. the clergyman in any Jane Austen novel is just another prospect on yeah. the, you know, marriage market of the declining English gentry. I mean, that's yeah. basically you, you, what it is. You invite a clergyman over and they're not going to bite your ear off about right. how you're not practicing Christianity well enough. They're not going <laughs> to shun anybody. They're polite members of the, of, of the establishment. Right. So, I mean, this is for a long time, the kind of historiographical view of 18th century uh, uh, Protestantism in England. And I should say uh, something, which is that this view was propagated by the 19th century, particularly the early 19th century. And it came in two forms, right? Um, uh, Both of which had very similar kind of critical uh, intent. Um, It it basically was the product of the rise of um, what we would call evangelicalism, um, uh, on the one hand, um, and um, the high church movement that would become known as the Oxford movement or tractarianism on the other hand. I mean, we could talk about both of these if you want to, but essentially um, these are much more serious um, uh, spiritually involved religious modalities. Um, Mm. And, you know, they would justify themselves and their critique of existing religion by contrasting themselves to this long epic of essentially religious sleepwalking in England. So again, right in the early 19th century, you begin to see both on the kind of religious left, so to speak, and on the religious right, so to speak, um, uh, these forms of revivalism um, that are basically not just critiquing the society they find themselves in um, and the kind of religious uh, uh, indifference and secularism of the society they find themselves in, but also saying, uh, you know, this is the culmination of essentially a hundred years of this uh, of this kind of religious indifference and lukewarmness and worldliness. Um, yeah. And this is how they justified their newfound kind of religious critiques of the society they found themselves in. And so is that, is that uh, a view of the 18th century is just religious sleepwalk? Is that wrong? Yes, I think it is wrong. I mean, I think it's absolutely wrong. Um, uh, there, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, the Parson Woodford, the Jane Austen, I mean, this is not incorrect. Um, and there is a tremendous amount of kind of, for lack of a better word, let's just call it a sort of spirit of accommodation hmm. among the religious. Um, there really is a sense of there isn't really anything to fight and die over anymore. Um, you know, we're the, the kind of 
the representatives of religious opinion are so ensconced in a given social order that they don't offer much of a critique of it. Um, they might say, you know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, but they're not going to, as I think you just pointed out, they're not going to, you know, like a Puritan might have a hundred years earlier, they're not going to kind of condemn you to hell at the dinner table. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, they're... they're <laughs> That is true, but I suppose we have to think about why that's true, right? Mm. Which is to say, we have to think about the the kind of process of that accommodation. And the process of that accommodation is an interesting set of stories in and of itself. It's not just a kind of standard you know, story about secularization. It's not just a kind of standard story of, well, we have religious toleration now and nobody's dying in the streets over this. So we can all kind of um, get on with the real business of life, which is, you know, making money and having an empire and, uh, you know, going to war against France, these sorts of things. Um, There really is a process of kind of neutralization that I think takes place. There really is a way in which the critical energies of religion are quite deliberately defanged right so uh, how 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 are these these energies defanged I, I remember when i did my reading for my orals a key moment for me in this was the i think it's called the the convocation the the, the mm-hmm. uh the end of the 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 convocation like the the political body where uh established church people could actually discuss things mm-hmm. is that is that a key date or am i completely mm-hmm. missing no you're absolutely right so so what you're talking about convocation is essentially i mean this is a simplification but for all intents and purposes we can think of it as the parliament of the clergy of the church of england right um and it um it, it met intermittently throughout the 17th century um it basically disappears very shortly after the restoration in the 1660s. And it disappears for a very particular reason, which is that basically it used to be that the convocation, like any parliament meets, to tax itself, mm. right? Um, that is to say it would meet and it would basically levy taxes on the on the clergy as a body um, and then give them to the king. Um, and basically in the 1660s, they more or less consented to be taxed along with everyone else. So when parliament levies a tax, it's a tax on everybody, right? You know, if it's a land tax, um, you, you know, if you're uh, a landowner, you're paying it whether you're a clergyman or not. And so once that happened, there was no purpose for it to meet. Immediately after the Glorious Revolution, though, in 1689, it's recalled. Um, it's a complete disaster. Um, uh, um, it's an incredibly contentious meeting. Uh, and the new king, King William, basically says, forget it. This is not worth the trouble. Um, after William dies... Um, and he's succeeded by his sister-in-law, Queen Anne, who's a much more devout Anglican um, than he ever was. Um, she recalls it, and it, from that moment on, about 1700, 1701, proceeds to sit more or less constantly with Parliament, as it's sort of constitutionally supposed to do, um, for the next 17 or 18 years. Okay, and this, um, this, is, this is like the image of a state church that I have in in, in my imagination that that you have the 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 leaders of the church basically sitting alongside the leaders of of the secular state and like making decisions together, right? Well, you do have that because you remember bishops, right? And 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 you know the Anglican Church is what we would call an Episcopal Church, and Episcopal just means having bishops, right? Mm. The Anglican Church is an Episcopal Church, meaning it has bishops and those bishops sit in the House of Lords, 
Mm. Right. And they always they always have. Right. They, they have always sat in the House of Lords. Um, and so one of the arguments against having convocation is basically that saying you don't need a clerical parliament. Um, the clergy are already represented in the real parliament because the bishops all as a as a body sit in the House of Lords. Um, so that's that image is correct. But for this kind of two decade period, you essentially had this other body called convocation. And it's really led by the lower clergy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, like parliament, it's divided into an upper house and a lower house. The upper house is all the bishops and the lower house are representatives from the clergy of each diocese, which is each, you know, uh, uh, ecclesiastical district in England. Um, and those clergy are for the most part, always more aggressively conservative about what's going on than the bishops are because the bishops of course are handpicked by the crown and so yeah. they're usually reliable uh upholders of crown policy and and you know don't tend to make too much too many waves because they're essentially politicians um but the lower clergy are not and so that's where you get all the firebrands and basically what you see over the course of these 20 years is the clergy trying to develop institutional resources to exercise its power in society that it feels, one, that it's entitled to, and two, that it no longer has. So I'll give you a very quick example. Um, It tries to basically revive its power to censor books Hmm. and and to haul authors who write uh, theologically heterodox things in front of them and to discipline them. And it's not clear that they have this this power at all. Um, Essentially, the censorship regime um, uh, ends in 1695 when something called the Licensing Act uh, is allowed to lapse. It disappears. And so now there's no real ability uh, on the part of state or church to engage in what's called pre-publication censorship, which is basically preventing something from making it to the bookstalls. There is processes of when something is published, getting it off the bookstalls, usually by a, a seditious libel prosecution. But convocation is essentially trying to exercise its ability to start uh, censoring books it doesn't like, um, closing down schools that it doesn't like, regulating education, um, shielding the two universities, Oxford and Cambridge, from political interference, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you see is this kind of a process of trying to revive and institutionalize the social power of the clergy to get ways, to, to, to yes, make these, these conservative lower clergy get into people's daily lives in the yes. way that this this parson would for a jane austen model of the clergy completely leaves uh, yes. set aside so yes. in the early 18th century you have this moment where the, the the convocation and the lower clergy are trying to be more active trying to be more 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 meddling mm-hmm. So what happens? Why why do we get? I mean, they're defeated. I mean, they are defeated. I mean, basically, this kind of what we would call this is what we would call sort of Anglican high churchmanship. Um, It is really on the outs with uh, you know it is usually in a political alliance with the Tory party, and after 1714, the Tory party basically goes into eclipse for the next 45 years. Right. I mean, you enter into a long period of sort of one party government, the kind of so-called Whig ascendancy um, or the Whig supremacy in which Whigs basically dominate uh, the entirety of government and the clergy who are promoted to bishoprics, the clergy who are um, given these influential 
jobs of helping to govern the church are, for the most part, reliable wigs. Um, and so, you know, this kind of somnolence, this kind of, you know, the Parson Woodford story you're telling is something that, you know, it wasn't just a kind of spontaneous thing. It was about the defeat of these more socially critical programs, the political defeat of these more kind of aggressively clerical programs to kind of have a real regulatory power in everyday social life. I want to I want to uh, distinguish the the story that you're telling from another way that I've told this story, okay. which is the March of Reason. Right, like the story that that I might tell of the 18th century yeah. is: look, uh, what happens? The reason why I have religious toleration is because people start talking to each other, they start publishing books. There's no censorship. You know, it's the the nice enlightenment story of reason overtaking inherited prejudice, uh, and you say. You know the the key part here is that the 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 change for you isn't some sort of march of reason, isn't some like philosophical commitment to toleration and to discussion and and stuff like that. Instead, it's 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 a political story. It's the defeat of a particular group of socially critical uh, clergy by the establishment um, that buries the 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 ability of the like religious institutions in daily life to offer acceptable, you know, trenchant forms of, 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 of critique. Is that, is that right? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think that the sense among the people that we're talking about, essentially these reactionary Anglican high church clergy in the early 18th century, um, is not that they object to reason, right? You have to be very careful about them. I mean, they all, yeah. everybody thinks that what they're doing is utterly rational. Nobody, right? nobody I mean, ever says, hey, I, well, some people say I reject reason, romantics <laughs> or so and all those. Yeah. But very few people start off their projects by saying, hey, reason and logic is bad. They're not on my right. side. Right. Um, the yeah, real you know, thing that to do that. Right. I think the real thing that they are nervous about is not the rationality of what you're describing, which is the enlightenment, but actually the concomitant individualism of it. Mm. Because if basically you say, well, look, I can read the Bible and decide which is just, you know, worth believing, which is poetry, which is mythology, um, which is the kind of stuff that I should impart to my children and, you know, servants and these kinds of things, then you yourself become the arbiter of orthodoxy. Mm. And there are literally there are literally pamphlets from the early 18th century where people say, and given that that's true, you don't really need to go to church or worse, um, somehow, believe it or not, worse, um, it doesn't matter which church you go to. As long as you know the gospel is preached, uh, then it's fine. And so they're basically saying it doesn't really much matter if you go to a Baptist church or, a, or an Anglican church um, or a Quaker meeting house, et cetera, et cetera. And so the real anxiety is not that suddenly people will become rational, but rather that suddenly people will start thinking about religion in the way that I think all of us do, in fact, think about yeah. religion, right? Which is as something that happens on the inside, right? Which is a sort of, we, t- we take the term religion and faith as more or less synonymous. And that's not really something that these Anglicans did. They didn't think of religion as a matter of believing X, Y, and Z. They thought of religion as a matter of belonging to this institution. This institution, the church that they in fact believed, is the body of Christ. That, right? that is ideally Catholic. That is ideally universal amongst the community. It's, it's, yes. it's identical to the community, which makes makes this kind of associational idea of religious belonging 
real, you know, you can't have a live and let live. If you believe that, you can't have a live and let live approach to other co-religionists because right yeah like if 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 religion like today is just another choice on an open market yes then you can't have a a truly universal church you can't be part of one body of of one religious body and i mean just to to push this even further because you know you work on associations right if you read which is you know you're talking about the enlightenment we're talking about toleration here the, the 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 piece of writing, which is probably the most important contribution to this debate, which is, of course, the English philosopher John Locke's letter concerning toleration that's published in 1689. Um, as he, you know, so Locke famously says, look, a church is just a voluntary association, right? Yeah. Um, uh, states can basically pretend it's something else, but it's not really anything else. It's just a voluntary association that people join, uh, you know, to affect the worship of God, right? And as he's going through this pamphlet, he keeps looking for things to compare his vision of what a church is. And he says, he compares them to clubs, he compares them to debating societies, he compares them to joint stock companies, which is essentially corporations, Um, he compares them to crowds. Um, And he basically says, and he literally says at one point, you know, we tolerate people sitting in a big room for theater, why wouldn't we tolerate people sitting in a big room um, to hear what they think is the word of God? And so he basically is sort of grasping for an analogy, and as he's doing that, he basically keeps saying a church is just one voluntary association among a whole panoply of voluntary associations that sort of make up what we think of as civil society. And the problem that Locke's kind of high church opponents see is um, not that they necessarily want to therefore use the state to compel you to go to this church and no other, but the problem they see, and in many ways I think quite rightly see, is that if you start describing a church as one voluntary association among another, then what's the difference between them? Right? Yeah. Is a church just another club? Is it just you know your volunteer, you know your softball team, or a you know a book club that you hang out with? I mean, or is it a, 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 an organization? The mere fact that you adhere to it and belong to it um, actually changes the kind of status of your soul and your kind of eternal life. Um, those things maybe both can't be true, or at least they're worried that they won't be, can't, they, they can't both be true. And so the question for them is not how do we get the state back in religion, but rather how do we establish the difference between this association and all those other associations? Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's, there's something about like the space in which religious activity happens as well. That, that, that that's important here in the late 18th century. I see people complaining about, uh, religious discussions happening in in taverns. They say, mm-hmm. "Look, you know, a ta- the tavern is just uh, people. People aren't religious these days. They go to a tavern to talk about God instead of to a church." There's something right. about this that, that that dilutes the the 18th century version of the sacred, but leads to some sort of 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 peace or ceasefire in religious life. Things are not as hot in the 18th mm-hmm. century about That's religious right. matters. Things um, are not as hot, but the specificity of religion disappears because yeah. um, you, things like, um, uh, you know, as we get to the later part of the 18th century and into the 19th century, um, you get things like Bible societies um, and temperance societies, right? You know, where we all pledge to not drink or where we're going to raise money and distribute Bibles or raise money um, to fund missions. These are are all deeply religiously inflected, but yeah. a kind of conservative might come along and say, that's all good stuff. But I just want to point out, ladies and gentlemen, that's not religion, right? Yeah. That's not worship. That's not, you know, 
that's not participation in the sacraments. Um, it's just a bunch of good deeds. And if you think that these are all the same, then absolutely, there's no difference between joining a temperance society, joining a church, or as you just pointed out, hearing a lecture from a kind of you know particularly interesting religious or philosophical thinker. Yeah. Why? Why? What, I, 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 isn't religion just about doing good stuff? Well, I mean, I, again, I think what you're describing is the product of the 18th century, right? And you're projecting it back onto the 18th century. In other words, that idea of religion is basically just being a good person um, and or, you know, avoiding being a bad person um, is, is a kind of post-enlightenment idea that the people that I'm particularly interested in are really fighting against. Mm. Um, they don't think it's just about doing good deeds. They think it's about performing a, you know, participating in a series of offices, a series of institutions and rituals and sacraments that were actually set up by Christ and the apostles, um, hmm. in which is, you know, a temperance society, that ain't one of them. You know what I mean? Um, uh, that's fine. You know, you shouldn't be a drunk. Um, uh, and that could make you a good person and that could aid in your sort of overall religious development. Um, but that isn't the same thing as, as belonging to this institution. And if it's just any institution where good things happen, then yes, you might have a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a more, you know, increasingly moralized society. Um, but, uh, you know, as we said, the kind of uh, the, the, the specific difference of what the church is supposed to be will disappear. And again, I think that they're right about that. And I think that they sort of put their finger on, on something that, in fact, has happened in the modern world very early on. I think they sort of see this happening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but things start to get a little hotter in the 19th century uh, religiously. Am I right? You, you talked about evangelical, evangelicals and, and, and Oxford movement people, but I'm also thinking yeah. about work on, on, on what you call eschatology, the belief in the end of the world. Uh, the Parson Woodfords and the Jane Austens, they're not, you know, thumping their Bibles on, on the dinner table and warning people that the end of the world is imminent. No. They're How not. does that change? How do people start to get concerned about this? So um, basically, there, there are two kinds of eschatology. I mean, there are sort of two kinds of eschatology that are, that are in play here. Um, and the one that really prevails throughout much of the period that we're talking about throughout this kind of long 18th century, let's say the yeah. late 17th to the early 19th century, is what's known as post-millennialism. Mm -hmm. And post-millennialism basically means, I mean, the, the post and post-millennialism is referring to when Christ is supposed to return, right? Okay. There's a period of a thousand years referenced throughout prophetic writings in the Bible, particularly uh, Daniel and Revelation, um, that talks about some kind kind of, let's say, messianic kingdom, okay? Um, the idea for a long period, the period of the 18th century, the period that we're calling the Enlightenment, for instance, is post-millennial, which is that um, the millennium, this kind of uh, period of world Christianization, is more or less continuous with the ordinary course of history. And yeah. so therefore, if you think that that's true, Joining a you know joining a Bible society or you know contributing money to you know missionary work um, or or you know sponsoring these kinds of temperance societies um, and reformation of manners societies that are cleaning up vice and shutting down brothels that's aating that's contributing to the overall long term Christianization of the universe of the Christianization or, or of the world 
defeating Catholic countries in war, right? Or defeating Catholic countries in war, but I would be careful about that. I mean, really, those 18th century wars do not have the same kind of religious complexion as 17th century wars. And so the idea in postmillennialism is that we'll just get better and better and better and better until there's a kind of global Christianization. And when that's completed – then the world and Christ returns and the world ends, right? So it's a kind of story, believe it or not, about progress. It's a deeply optimistic story in keeping with the overall tenor of kind of 18th century enlightenment thinking. Um, By the end of the 18th century, you begin to get a series of pushbacks against that, right? Um, And and, um, it really begins to take on steam, surprise, surprise, after 1789, after the the outbreak of the French Revolution and the beginning of the French Revolutionary Wars, you know, which um, as they feed into the Napoleonic Wars will basically occupy the next 25 years of European history. Um, uh, you'll see obviously the fall of the French monarchy and the disestablishment of Roman Catholicism in France and uh, you know, the disestablishment of Catholicism elsewhere, the destruction of the Holy Roman Empire, um, and on and on and on it goes. And so people start suggesting that, well, wait a minute, um, maybe things don't – maybe the Bible said don't, never said things get better, um, but mm-hmm. rather – and that the millennium is sort of continuous with the ordinary course of history, but rather things get worse and worse and worse. Um, Christ returns and then and only then is the millennium commenced. Right. And this is what's known as premillennialism, right? That basically, you know, and this is an increasingly pessimistic theological outlook in which we tend to think of history as something um, that's basically getting progressively worse, um, that is fulfilling the signs of conflict and cataclysm that are supposed to attend the end of days in biblical prophecy. And we can start looking at history as, um, uh, you know, something that basically is to be read as foretelling this imminent supernatural intervention, which is the second advent, which is the return of Christ. Um, And once you begin to get that, um, really starting in the 1790s and then increasingly picking up steam in the first two, three, four decades of the 19th century, um, you begin to see a much darker outlook, right? Um, and historians who like to treat this um, often think that uh, um, uh, uh, pre-millennialism not only gained steam um, in the you know long period of the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, um, but really, really takes on explicit social force in the 1820s and 30s in the period of industrialization in England, yeah. right? There is, that it is a outlook for a darkening class conflict, war-torn period, rather than the post-millennialism, um, which seems appropriate to the 18th century, which is an era of expansion and prosperity. So the 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 the, the premillennial uh, pre premillenarians they they probably look at the good works of the postmillenarians and say, hey, that all you're doing is delaying the inevitable. Yes. All you're do- by trying to 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 make the world a better place. All you're doing is you're delaying the moment when Christ will come and actually do it himself. Correct. Right? What our job is is to to to. Do whatever, do whatever good thing it is to become members of the elect and look for the signs yes. of Christ's coming in Wait the and watch. Happening. Wait, Wait and watch. Wait which, and watch. Which, which I think is a great, a, 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 a great segue to, to, to just close the conversation talking about this kind of 
pre-millenarianism today. Because when you think when I think of that, I I, I think of what has been a very alienating and, and 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 strange experience of looking at conspiratorial millenarianism in the American right today, like QAnon stuff, mm-hmm. um, which looks you know obs- you know more or less obsessively for signs of uh, awful things happening to prove the inevitable. Uh, 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 apocalypse that 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 will result in something good, right? I mean, so just to kind of go back very quickly before jumping forward again, yeah. for a long time, you know, the the sort of mainstream Protestant assumption, even among people who didn't think all that much about the end of the world, was that the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, is in some sense the kind of biblical antichrist, right? Yeah. Um, but after 1688-89, after the Glorious Revolution. And the real political threat of Roman Catholicism subsides in England. People don't worry too much about that, right? I mean, that really kind of fades away in a way that, you know, it's very present in the 17th century, but in the 18th century, nobody much cares about this, right? Um, What happens after the outbreak of the French Revolution is you begin to see this kind of reappropriation of this sort of eschatological thinking. And people start saying, no, we were completely wrong about this. The real Antichrist is Republican France, (laughs) or the real Antichrist is everything you and I have just been talking about, the principles of reason and the Enlightenment and secularization and look at the violence they're doing in this kind of anti-Catholic, anti-religious revolution that is tearing up Europe right now. And I've actually sat and read pamphlets in which you will literally have six, 700-page tomes, treatises, debating on the extent to which whether we can consider Napoleon Bonaparte uh, you know, a figure of Antichrist, right? Yeah. And so what happens is this kind of um, principle of Antichrist, which had been relative, Protestant thought had been relatively secured in the Roman Catholic Church, um, kind of breaks loose and it now could be anywhere. And people yeah. say, well, it's secularism or it's industrialization or it's, you know, and basically you have you, this you kind of sense. This in which, treatment of the Masons, the Masons. Yes, you know, absolutely. In, in, in the 18th century, where, where I say, if you want to make fun of the Masons, you say that they do weird sex stuff. Yes, right. You know, that's the critique of them. Oh, they have gay sex or they have sex with a skull or something. Yep. Yes. But in the 19th century, if you want to critique the Masons, they are Satanists. Right. They right. Are, 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 you know, controlling the world and they're doing it because they're devil worshippers. Right. Like a big change. And nearly all of that rhetoric <laughs> – that really starts in the 1790s, the kind of anti-Illuminati, anti-Masonic paranoia um, that really begins in the 1790s. Um, all of that is really appropriated from anti-Catholic thought, um, anti-witchcraft thought, and going all the way back to the Middle Ages, anti-Semitic thought. Right? Yeah. But these are sort of nighttime meetings, and they sacrifice children, and but they're secretly pulling the strings of everything. And so all of that absolutely is secularized and turned into this kind of free-floating alienation from history, right? Yeah. In which these kinds of – this sort of religious outlook makes people sit and pick up the newspaper and look at it and say, in what ways am I seeing biblical prophecy fulfilled? Right. And what ways am I seeing the forces of history sort of working against the righteous and the just? Right. Um, Whether that's just me personally or everybody I know or England or America or whatever it is. So you enter into this kind of almost antagonistic relationship with history in which you're sort of reading it to watch how it's going to destroy you and the things that you love. And that to me is, is how you get to what you just suggested, which is that 
you know, the extent to which premillennialism becomes absolutely central to American evangelicalism in the period um, after the American Civil War and into the early 20th century, um, it, particularly in its kind of what's called its premillennial dispensationalist form, which is basically taking um, a series of ideas generated uh, in, you know, in, in, in by the Anglo-Irish uh, uh, theologian uh, Darby. Um, uh, and in the 1840s, and basically sort of applying it, you begin to get this sense in which history is uh, a kind of code to be unlocked, yeah. right, is a kind of cipher. And so the meaning of events is always both what it appears to be and this other thing. And so if you follow things like QAnon um, – you know, they constantly say their symbolism will be their undoing, right? I've never, I mean, I've never understood this. I mean, the, the sort of animating principle of this conspiracy is that, you know, not only are these nefarious things going on, um, but these people are so nefarious, that they need to constantly um, yeah. basically leave breadcrumb trails of their of their misdeeds um, uh, all over the place for, you know, these internet sleuths to decipher. Yeah, yeah. Not um, only do you have to believe that there is a a cabal of pedophile people who run the world, which yes. might may or may not be plausible, uh, you have to believe that they also leave clues to tell you who are the yes. pedophiles and who are not. Yes. I mean, but this is this is kind of like this. That is in, in some ways, and not to use this word badly, but the, the, it's in some ways an enlightenment urge to make sense of everything. Everything has a me in this. You, you do, history might be, we might be alienated from history from this, in this view, but everything does have meaning, which if you don't like my, my, my experience of the world is just a bunch of, you know, difficult to understand somewhat meaningless accidental events that, that all just jumble together. They don't have, it's like, there's no meaning for me to sift through, you know, somebody dies and I don't, I don't, I don't get to see it as a clue. Right. Well, well I mean, I'm not sure I would quite agree. I think I know where you're going, but one thing, I, let me just push back slightly on this yeah. because it's not necessarily an enlightenment um, outlook, it's a providential outlook, right? Mm -hmm. Which is to say, yeah. if you believe, if you were, you know, a religiously committed person, um, you experience history as the unfolding of the will of God. And so the kind of traditional theological move would be um, exactly as you just said, well, um, I'm sorry that this loved one has passed, but, you know, she's with God now, or he's with God now, um, or this is the will of God and Deus Volt. And, you know, you get this kind of resignation to um, the higher purpose that you're only dimly seeing, right? Um, when you kind of go from there to the sort of conspiratorial outlook, there is a real almost secularization story in the sense of you still have the same move, right? This is all evidence of some higher design, some higher purpose, but without the kind of bedrock theological commitments of a belief in divine providence, then mm. the higher unfolding, the higher process is the thing that you have to figure out. That's the riddle. And it's yeah. not just, well, this is all leading to the second coming of Christ, but rather it takes on this other form, um, this almost kind of parody-like form in which, um, yes, there's some apocalyptic confrontation with communists or world Jewry or uh, or uh, uh, the global cabal of, of you know, pedophiles, um, whatever Whatever it is, um, it looks theological, um, but it's in some sense deeply secularized, right? Yeah. Because the kind of meaning of all this is no longer given in a belief in God, but is rather now something that you have to figure out. 
right? You, you have to discern. Like people who were reading the Bible in taverns would have to figure out the word of God for themselves. Right? Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, yes, although with some assurance that it ultimately meant X, Y, and Z. They had to sort of work out the details. Um, here, um, it's, it's actually the kind of overarching framework that's no longer assured. We don't know where this is all headed. And so the kind of mechanism and, and moving forces of history are the things that have to be discerned. Um, and then once you get those, then you can deduce everything else, and it just kind of takes you down these rabbit holes. So this is scary stuff. I mean, like QAnon is not a marginal belief at this point. Um, what 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 do you think will happen uh, with these with <laughs> modern day pre 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 millennials? I I don't know. I mean, I, I that I certainly can't say. I mean, I I, I don't know what will happen. Um, I I mean, I do. <sighs> One of the things – I mean one of the things I want to say because you know, I'm not a historian of conspiracy theory, but this is sort of just a kind of side project here. But um, I, you know, and I do think as we've been discussing that conspiracy theory is, is, is deeply historically continuous with all kinds of, sort of religious imperatives in all kinds of ways. Um, but one of the things that conspiracy theory does, again, thinking about it as a kind of surrogate for religion in many ways, is what's known as theodicy, right? Um, meaning the kind of branch of theology or, or theological ethics, which basically explains um, God's justice in the world, or basically the kind of shorthand being, um, why do bad things happen to good people, yeah. right? Um, you know, we, we, you know, deaths and, and, and suffering and deprivation, we say, you know, in a more kind of religiously inclined age, we'd say, well, this is the will of God and the, the proper response is a kind of resignation. Um, now we call upon, or at least some people call upon narratives of conspiracy. They call upon a kind of paranoid style, but it basically does the same thing. You know, you don't hear conspiracy theories being invoked to explain when good things happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. when employment numbers go down or, you know, the economy is <laughs> yeah. doing great, nobody has to basically say, oh, it's George Soros doing this, right? Um, there's, no, you, you, there's no conspiracy to talk about the, the why crime rates went down. Over the that's, past exactly right. why, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. We haven't had – nobody's going to say coronavirus isn't as bad as we expected because there was a, good, a bunch of, you know, Avengers who magically that's made right. it. That is yeah. exactly right. And so conspiracy theory is designed to basically, you know, like, like theodicy is designed to explain catastrophe. It's designed yeah. to explain cataclysm. It's designed to explain bad things, um, which means something really, really important for thinking about why Americans are such a, a, a particularly conspiratorial people. Um, it, it means on some level that they don't think that they deserve it, right? Yes. In other words, they think that the normal course of history is things get better and better. Yeah. Um, and when things don't appear to be getting better, um, you know, uh, again, an older, you know, theistic tradition could say, well, we're being tested by God. And you hear this yeah. kind of rhetoric during the American Civil War and things like that. Um, but as that loses its kind of cultural purchase on people, um, there needs to be some other mechanism of justification, um, yeah. some other way of kind of making the sort of everyday struggle of life um, mean something, um, particularly when things keep going wrong. Um, you know, wars, terrorism, uh, uh, you know, economic downturns, um, pandemics, et cetera, now civil unrest in, you know, American cities. Um, and so uh, people will gravitate toward these kinds of frameworks um, as long as they continue to consider the world opaque. If that yeah. makes sense, as long as they feel like 
the processes that actually determine life, the processes that you and I as historians, you know, are committed to kind of studying and teaching and writing about. As long as they consider the, you know, as long as they sort of live their lives sort of opaque, you know, the, in which those kinds of processes are opaque, um, then, then they will fill in with other kinds of stories, I think. Right. So you have you have on the one hand you have the the the, the American belief that everything is going to go well forever for me. My bank account is going to keep on growing bigger. My house is going to appreciate more. My family is going to grow. Everything will go well, and that is just immune to the challenges of the the the, the disappointments of real life. Mm-hmm. And you need you need something to blame. You need some sort of story to 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 tell about why. These things, these bad things, are happening to Americans, right? I mean, it's particularly interesting, at least with something with QAnon, where you know, uh, again, this is not something I've really studied in any kind of formal way, but that seems to be this uniquely, well, uniquely might be overstating it, but seems to be particularly popular among older Americans, right? It seems yeah. to be this kind of baby boomer phenomenon more than anything else. Um, and one way of thinking about it, or at least explaining that, is the extent to which. Um, that generation of people, you know, obviously grew up with their own crises, um, but also grew up in a period of broadly a kind of you know massive post-war expansion, and you know, uh, 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 you know, an organized labor movement, and you know, a generous welfare state. Um, Things are getting cetera. better and better for them, right? Um, and 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 as we've entered a world in which that's really no longer true. Um, you would think that they might have to avail themselves of explanations more than, say, people your age and younger, um, whose whole adult lives have just been one cataclysm after another. Yeah. Um, Well, that's a great – one cataclysm after another is a great place to end. Thank you. Thank you very much for for, uh, coming on the show. Uh, Brett, um, thank you to Duncan Barton, who did the image of uh, uh, for the podcast, and Jonathan Lear, who did the music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us with an in-law. In-laws like us. Uh, and do all those things uh, that you do with social media that you like. Um, thanks for listening.